Hello, welcome to the Stockout. This is the second Stockout since we revamped it, added Grace. And uh, Grace, we have a lot to go over today. I don't know how we're going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> we got a lot of stuff. Uh, and also, I just keep the new uh, graphic that we have too. You're right. Uh, you mentioned it in the newsletter. It's uh, a lot nicer. So shout out to our team over there. They're killing it in the graphics. <laughs> Yeah, although I do miss the old, the old one also that the the conveyor belt to nowhere is is what I called it. <laughs> that was good too. <laughs> yeah, so what we're going to do today, a lot to go over, a lot of news in CPG and retail space. We we put aside 26 minutes to go over two different um industries, three different verticals, retail and uh, CPG. We talk a little bit about each. Uh Kroger announced major divestiture last week. Uh last Thursday. We'll talk about that. We'll hit on uh, the, the big news today in CPG land. Smuckers acquiring hostess, $5.6 billion uh deal. Who knew uh Twinkies are worth um quite that much? And then we're gonna interview uh Flow Space co-founder and CEO Ben Eaches. Um, so that'll be in- informative as well. Before we do that, I want to make sure anyone um who would like to sign up for the newsletter uh knows how to do that. Uh, so all you need to do is go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout, or just go to freightwaves.com, go up to newsletters and click on that first one, the stockout CPG and retail. I always try to send you a newsletter uh, each week with um, some news on, on both of those verticals, as well as what's happening in the freight uh, space. So uh, I can look forward to that every sort of Wednesday or Thursday, um, depending on uh, schedules. And with that, uh, we'll go into the first uh, topic, and I'll sort of say what I think about this, and then I'll, I'll see if, if you um, sort of agree with me or, or, or don't. So Kroger, last Thursday, big announcement, um, announced it's going to divest 413 stores, in a, um, and, and the buyer is CNS Wholesale Grocers. It's just one of these companies that's kind of one of the biggest companies you've never heard of. It's one of the largest privately held companies and um the primarily distributors so they're a little bit behind the scenes they um the 413 stores could be up to 650 stores so as we know kroger in the middle of trying to get this deal done with albertson's um sort of the biggest traditional grocer that that keyword being traditional they're not as big as let's say walmart in the the, the grocery space trying to get that done with with albertson's it does need ftc approval and you know, going into the deal uh, when they when it was announced last October, Kroger thought that they could get it done. You know, provided that they uh, divested anywhere from 100 to 350 or 375 stores, something in that range. And they seem to have found a really good partner here with CNS Wholesale Grocers. I think it alleviates a lot of the concerns that um, you know some people had as far as. Stores closing, the stores seem like they're going to be open. This is going to be a unionized uh, company. They say they're not going to get rid of any first, um, you know, sort of uh, frontline workers. They'll get rid of workers that do things like um, investor relations and and, and those things. But um, that seems to alleviate a lot of the big concerns. And uh, it seems to me that this this deal is much more likely to close and receive FTC approval now that we found a buyer for these stores and it checks a lot of these boxes and Kroger's lawyers thought they could get it done even with fewer stores, uh, something less than 400 stores that now they're going to sell 413. And there's the option for 
Kroger to divest all the way up into the 650 stores, which would be the maximum, uh, you know, under the current agreement. So I kind of go from thinking, you know, before last week that there was an 85% chance. I'm just kind of using uh, round numbers here. 85% chance the deal was going to close. It's going to get approval. I think it's more like a 95% chance. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they really uh, figured out every issue that they had with uh, getting this deal done. It, big part both you and i touched on our shows probably around march right, of, of of this year was um the union aspect of, of some of these stores too and it sounds like this is a perfect buyer for them to take over a number of those stores in particular and no stores will have to close because of it so for the employee side of it i think this is uh fantastic and then uh for of course the consumer and, and getting this deal done it sounds like they hit that right on the mark. Uh, he, he brought this up. 650 stores was their absolute max. They said the deal won't happen if they have to go past that. And now they have, what, almost 100 and, and uh, what, 70 or so stores to play with on top of that. So uh, I think this is great. I think it's it's creating a com- another competitor in the space, too, which pushes back any thoughts of this being too big of a of a monopoly, I guess you could say, or, or of a company to compete with. Um, and it still allows, I think, Kroger to compete with what uh, some of, you'd say, Walmart, Amazon in particular is also brought up by physical stores. Uh, so they're bigger competitors too. So uh, I think it's, it's, I think it's positive to me. And, and the other side of it too, the employees should be happy about uh, a lot of the fears they had earlier this year. Yeah, it doesn't seem anti-competitive to me. Um, and there were also a couple of interesting things that, that you know, came out of their analyst call on on Thursday that I, I jotted down here. I'll bring up. They said the valuation of the stores just under three times EBITDA when they did have that original Spinco in October. They sort of anticipated it being about three times EBITDA, so maybe it was a little bit below that. But um, you know that that's you know that originally they were thinking that they were going to spin off those companies. Spin off those stores into a new company, but then they would still have to sell some, uh, 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 find a third party for for some, you know, uh, stores. So it doesn't seem like it was too different than what they originally expected for valuation. Maybe a little bit lower. They also talked about, um, sort of unrelated to the deal, that the disinflation in grocery prices was a little bit more intense than they had anticipated. They say that um, now they expect for the year inflation to be like one to two percent down from three to four percent previously for their fiscal year. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and they also said that the CPG companies are working with them a little bit more closely on getting prices lower to move more tonnage. So I thought that was incremental. And then on the consumer, they said that um, you know really there's kind of they're on a couple different tracks on those lower end consumers, uh, lower income consumers. You know, they're really seeing more fluctuation based on when SNAP payments uh, come through or when there's a payday uh, during the 15th or 30th of the month. So I thought that was interesting. They said e-commerce still growing nicely up 12% year over year and sort of highlighted those are the best consumers because those consumers tend to spend three times as much, um, you know, with them. So I thought those were were interesting um, points there. Um, so I'm listening too. I feel like that also kind of showcases a little bit of the consumer health, right? At the same time, that's uh, if they can see that down to the day, that's pretty uh, exceptional too. Yeah, and they said that you know, point about this working with the CPG, CPGs are being more accommodative on on price cuts. I thought that was a little bit um, incremental to what we've heard from some of the other retailers that said, "Well, we want to get these prices down, but you know, haven't really had anything definitive." Um, 
So with that, I think we'll move on to the next uh, topic. Smucker today, buying Hostess, have a stock chart on that showing a nice bounce for ticker TWNK. That was one of the better tickers, um, you know, symbols. So they own, they own Twinkie. Uh, so it's being acquired 5.6 billion enterprise value. That's 17.2 times adjusted EBITDA multiple that comes down to 13.2 times with uh, synergies included. They think $100 million in cost um, re related uh, synergy. So they think there's quite a lot of synergies there um, where they, it sounds like they can consolidate things like some of the um, you know, distribution centers, some of the transportation costs, some of those things. So that was part of the motivation. Hostess has an impressive 23%. EBITDA margin. And some of the interesting things there is they like the snacking segment. That's not a surprise. You know, I've seen Mondelez really do well, but they say the indulgent segment is, has grown 20% faster than the healthy snacking segment. So taking a different yeah. approach than Mondelez, which Mondelez owns uh, Oreo, a lot of the other sort of more indulgent, and they're going more in the healthy side of things. Um, no word yet. My main question is, are there, is there, are we going to see a Twinkie Uncrustable where a hostess cupcake uncrustable. Keep your fingers crossed. Uh, on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, uh, my hopes there too as well. Uh, talk about non-healthy snacks that they could add to that portfolio, right? Uh, no, it's uh, it, that's interesting too. I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, it, it's I've noticed uh, just like grocery shopping in particular uh, on the uh, unhealthy side of the snacks, more and more of these uh, like private label brands too. So I wonder uh, how much competition they do have on that side of things as well. But um, yeah, that's interesting that, that to see the push away from healthy snacks more, uh, again, maybe a tell of the times, right? Where we can, uh, if things aren't going right, if we can't travel, if we can't <laughs> indulge in more activities or maybe luxury goods, why not? have a snack at the end of the day and make ourselves feel a little bit better is kind of what I'm seeing there. But uh, interesting, definitely interesting uh, uh, merger. And, and it sounds like a lot of it too, warehouse-wise, the synergies uh, between their networks uh, should work out pretty well. So uh, good one there for uh, snackers in particular. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like people like comfort food when there's times of un uncertainty, which really saw that a lot in the pandemic it seems to have continued. Um, and they really said that they like the hostess efficient warehouse distribution model. They didn't go into too much detail on that, but but it sounds like um, th that hostess uh, you know, really has an efficient uh, distribution model there. Uh, so um, you know, with that, I think we'll leave the last uh, sort of fifteen minutes for our our guest. It's FlowSpace CEO and founder Ben Eiches. Um, ben, thank you for joining us. Oh, uh, uh, he's muted for me. Can you guys turn his mic on? Yeah, muted for me too. There we go. Nope. So muted. Still on here in your bed. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Yay. There we go. All right. All right. <laughs> well, it's great to be here, Grayson Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking you're my first guest, I think, on point of sale when I took over the show. And you're now our first guest here when I started this show with Mike. So it's a, a perfect full circle for me. So I love that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully I don't disappoint you. I mean, <laughs> well, hey, mics are working, so I can't get worse right now. All right. Uh, uh, could you update our audience a little bit of who FlowSpace is and really what you're you're adding to the market today in terms of technology? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
We started the company about six years ago. What Flowspace is, is a fulfillment platform that helps brands fulfill and distribute their orders across any channel that they may be selling the product. Um, so our software essentially serves as a command center for brands that are looking to orchestrate and then also execute their fulfillment. Um, and we work with a network of warehouse partners around the country, over a hundred of them. And really our goal is to power what we call independent of independent commerce. So companies that are increasingly taking control of, of their fulfillment themselves, they can leverage flow space to help them do that. And I think it's really perfect to have you as a guest today, especially with a lot of the companies that we're talking about in particular, looking at how to optimize their networks. And uh, we'll get into in a second, a lot of, especially the holidays coming up, different ways to reach consumers. Uh, but I want to talk about warehousing in particular right now. Uh, what does the market look like during the pandemic? And I would say even lightly still today, we're seeing a lot of, uh, let's say, overbuilts or really uh, a lot of issues in regards to um, capacity as well and, and what's available for those out there, especially last minute or looking to maybe uh, for companies that are looking to maybe stay a little bit more agile. Uh, what have you noticed from your customers and what trends have you seen in the space today? Sure. From from talking with our customers, I think there has been a lot of change. Um, if you're talking about the pandemic to today, I think two, three years ago, really all of our conversations with customers were around how do we scale? How do we ensure that we have locked in capacity as our businesses grow? And well, of course, those are still concerns. Companies are increasingly focused on how do you how do you drive down cost and what are things that we can do to optimize? So essentially, how can I do more with less? How can I leverage technology to automate manual processes that I have in my operations functions? Um, how can I ensure that I'm shipping my products from the right places and then I'm ordering the right quantities? I, I think you're, you're still seeing some whiplash where no one wants to kind of do that over ordering that happened during the pandemic. And then I think even we're starting to have kind of customers, um, and I would say this is more in the nascent phase, but ask about what can AI do for my business? Um, Really, it's less about the AI. It's more about the application for that supply chain function. Um, on the warehouse operator side, um, you know, and I think, Grace, but this maybe goes to the heart of your question. There's always been a disconnect between leasing, warehouse leasing data and utilization data, what's actually going on in the warehouse. And, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely correct in that we do see capacity loosening up, especially in key markets where, especially around companies that have perhaps least uh, based on pandemic projections, they do have capacity and and they're looking for companies to, to help them utilize it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the big trends we're seeing now is, is all this, um, you know, discussion and action related to omni-channel. You hear that a lot from the CPG companies that want to sell directly. Also hear that a lot from the retailers that want to meet customers where they are. Uh, sort of have a, have those options. Sort of what sort of unique challenges does that present to either the retailer or the CPG company, and, and how do you help uh, with that? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know I think it depends on how you look at it. It could be a challenge, or for us, we think it's a it's a massive opportunity. And first, I just want to kind of level set on what we're talking about with omnichannel. I think it means a lot of different things to different people, um, but for us, it means companies that are selling their products directly on their website, um, potentially leveraging marketplaces like Amazon or Walmart. And then increasingly leveraging social social media platforms and also selling their products in traditional brick and mortar uh, retailers, like some of the ones you mentioned in, in that earlier segment. So what this means, and 
you know, a tactical way. Um, when you're talking about brands that are maybe started selling their products almost exclusively online, um, and now we're trying to get their products into brick and mortar retail. Well, the tech stack is fundamentally different. So retail runs on a system called EDI, um, electronic data interchange. And so they're looking for companies that can not only take in orders and help them make decisions for their digital platforms, but also absorb that, that EDI information, um, help them manage their product listings, understand, um, you know, in, in times of inventory scarcity, who gets what? Does that retailer order get your inventory or should it still be available uh, to sell on your website or one of the marketplaces? So increasingly, we're seeing this shift to omni-channel um, mean that tech stacks need to be updated. That means um, you need better order management capabilities, inventory forecasting capabilities, and, and better connectivity to different types of, of ways to communicate uh, system-wise. You know, it's it's interesting, Ren. I've uh, I recently went through like a couple of my latest purchases, and I'm I'm kind of considering where that origin of that purchase came from. And of the last five, three have been through Instagram, and it's uh, you know the ads pop up, or I see an account, I scroll through, and I'm like, okay, that's uh, I see someone who you know looks like me in the outfit, I want to buy that. I know you've recently even partnered with TikTok in regards to their fulfillment. Can you tell me more about this like social media space and, and what retailers are finding in regards to reaching out to customers, but also uh, fulfilling those orders in a, in a quick uh, manner to, to stay competitive somewhat like Amazon? Sure. And, and Grace, I think you, your, your story is, is probably very relatable for many of the listeners here in that you know, increasingly brands want to have their products available for sale where the customers are. And customers happen to be browsing for product information on, on different social platforms like, like Instagram and like TikTok. Um, Blowspace, as, as we announced um, a while ago, has been fortunate to, to partner with TikTok on powering some of their, their fulfillment initiatives. Um, so while it's, it's still early days for some of the, these, these social media commerce platforms, um, we see tremendous growth potential there. Because ultimately, that is where the customers are, and I, I think that that is increasingly what brands are turning to. And and when you talk about omni-channel, the only reason brands are talking about that is because their customers are now they're they're going back to stores in a major way, so their products need to be available on those shelves. Um, during the pandemic, it was you know everyone was shopping online, so those products needed to be available on their websites. So really, the idea is getting flow space and help these brands essentially get those products to their customers, regardless of where they're ordered. And there are many steps required in order to get that right down from the inventory down to routing that order to the correct place, carrying the right inventory amounts. So it's a really exciting challenge. And I, I think we're still in the very early days of all of this. Yeah. Some of your, um, your customers you have listed on your website, you know, fresh Del Monte pod foods, um, you know, strike me as having, you know, sort of perishable items. Maybe it would need a refrigerated capacity. Sort of, what are some of the special challenges associated with uh, perishable items, and how do you address, address those things? Yeah, great question, Mike. And you know, we're fortunate to be partnered with Del Monte as, as well as Pop Foods, which is a new age uh, distributor, um, help helping brands essentially get into some of the traditional gro grocery channels. Um, so there are a bunch of challenges associated with this. One is. E-commerce is still a relatively new category for emerging brands. So um, help, helping these brands not only plan their network, but ensure that the products are um, 
have temperature control available. Um, anytime you're dealing with perishable products, you're also talking about um, you know lot tracking, customized picking logic. So around FIFO or FEFO, like all the different kind of requirements necessary to ensure that you're you're getting through your oldest inventory first, potentially. Um, and then really it it focuses on inventory planning because unlike a durable good, um, if you miss that shelf life or if you overorder, you could be sitting on a ton of obsolescent inventory. So they, these are really the challenges that are presented. But again, I think what we're seeing increasingly is that brand selling to uh, through what you consider maybe traditional brick and mortar channels are also trying to sell these same products in different channels as well. And that that poses uh, a bunch of complexity that, that we're helping them, them solve. And, and fortunately, we have great partners in this. Now, I'm interested, especially in the, the warehousing uh, network of something more on the refrigerated side or the cold chain. It seems there's a lot of technology that goes behind it. And I would assume that with that being said, you're looking at more up-to-date warehousing networks in particular. Is that difficult to find in the industry today where inventory or I guess capacity that's available for warehousing is seems slim or do you find that there's more and more sites that are becoming up to date to to fulfill the needs that flow space needs in order to make uh, that network uh, able to you know work for the cold chain as well sure you know I, I would say refrigerated or temperature control capacity is definitely harder to come by it's more specialized I think secondly um it's just a actually more consolidated space where there's bigger players that control more of the market as opposed to the the 3PL or general warehouse market at large, which is is pretty fragmented. I think with FlowSpace, and we, we've been fortunate to, to partner with a company like Del Monte, who has a national network of really state-of-the-art uh, temperature control and cold storage facilities and uh, partnering and leveraging our software with their capacity and their amazing services, we're able to, to have a really unique offering in the market. Um, but Grace, to answer your question directly, yeah, it is harder to come by for sure. Yeah, I wanted to ask you also, I mean, what do you think CPG companies and retailers need to consider when designing their fulfillment network? So what would you sort of hi highlight there? I mean, here are different things of some saying, well, you should have fewer distribution centers, others say you should have more closer to the customer. Uh, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I think I would start with, if, if I were advising a brand um, that's potentially selling into some of these channels, I think I would start with where are your customers and where, how are you reaching them, right? Because let's say, um, let's say you're a brand and you only sell in brick and mortar retail. Well, I would look at where um, the retailer has distribution points and aggregate my inventory around those locations. Um, but if you have a, a growing e-commerce or direct-to-consumer business, I would look at where my end consumer is placing the orders um, because often shipping costs are the main driver of cost after your cogs or the product the cost to actually produce that item. Um, so looking at that, you'd likely you know settle on let's call it two facilities where you can service um, both both coasts where main population centers are um, without dramatically increasing your inventory holdings, and then you can start to layer on new channels. Um, the second thing I would look at is the different type of tech stack that I would need in order to do that. Um, I think it's not enough to have, you know, and I've been part of many companies where they'd have essentially two different systems, one system that manages all your direct-to-consumer business and another that manages your, your wholesale business. And 
what that means is if you just don't have any visibility across channel and that's that's really um it's not suitable it's not adequate in today's market you really need that visibility across channels well, uh, Ben, I really appreciate your insight today and, of course, everything that you've you know, educated our audience on as well. Where can people go to learn more about what place Flowspace is doing and, and reach out to you as well? Yeah, so um, please visit us at, at flow.space. Um, we also have, you can reach us on LinkedIn. You can email me. My, my email is just my, my first name at flow.space. I'm really looking forward to talking to, to any brand that's that's trying to figure some of these challenges out. Um, that's why we started the company and that's why we come to work every day. We're really excited to help brands solve these challenges. Great. Well, thanks very much. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Grace. Yeah, absolutely. Glad, glad to have you. And uh, next uh, week on the Stockout, we have uh, Steve Lewis, Division President of Americas and Asia Pacific, head of um, GXO Direct. And then the following week, we have the Bold Carts, a CEO, Bill Reinhardt, Bold Carts, the company that manufactures premium vape cartridges and other um, accessories for plant-based oil extracts, talking about innovation in cannabis technology. So the, both of those should be you know, very interesting uh, as well. But um, thanks for listening. Hope everyone has a great day.